This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Dr. J.R. Briggs, the founder and director of Kairos Partnerships. His list of ministries and projects spans the gamut of possibility from coaching pastors to instructing university students, from authoring books to hosting podcasts. J.R. brings a wealth of experience wherever he goes. He and his wife, Megan, have two boys and live just outside of Philadelphia. So, J.R., welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brent. It's good to be here. Uh, JR, how do you feel about that? We, you have so many things going on. We had to figure out how to introduce... First of all, how do you feel about the title doctor? I'm still getting used to it, actually. Uh, I, I'm, I'm reminded sometimes that my technical title is Reverend Dr. JR Briggs, but... <laughs> I like I tell I tell my students please just call me Jr. <laughs> that's who I am. But it, I still I still catch myself going, man, Doctor Briggs. I guess that's me. Uh, I did that last night in class uh, teaching, and I, it felt weird. So to be honest, I'm still getting used to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, is there anything? What? What? How would you introduce yourself in addition to all those things? Uh, introduce yourself for us. Yeah. Well, I I normally like to say that I just have four driving passions that inform how I live and what I do. Number one is following Jesus. Number two is equipping and investing in hungry kingdom leaders. Three is growing fruit on other people's trees. And the fourth, my favorite, is I like to create good kingdom mischief. So just about all that I do gets wrapped up in one of those four expressions. I really like the good kingdom mischief uh, idea. That's that's pretty fun. <laughs> Uh, so JR, why don't you, um, talk about how, you know, Marty or how Marty knows you or, or what that relationship was like. Yeah. Marty and I met, I'm, I'm even forgetting the year, Marty, maybe you can fill us in here, but, uh, the Epic Fail Pastors Conference is something that we hosted here in our town here on the North side of Philadelphia called Lansdale, Pennsylvania. And, uh, we, we've seen so many of these Christian conferences around the, the country that kind of celebrate celebrity pastors and I found myself looking around saying, there's so many good pastors that are obscure and unknown, but are so full of wisdom and fruit and vitality. And those voices need to be heard. And there are a lot of failed pastors that um, they need a safe space to grieve. And so I just put out this crazy idea saying, instead of a big pastors conference where we talk about our successes, what if they were there was a healthy and hope-filled space uh, to host something called the Epic Fail Pastors Conference? And so I was kind of scared to death to put this on because I thought, can you imagine the headline, uh, Epic Fail Pastors Conference Canceled Due to Low Registration? And uh, <laughs> I, I just really wrestled with that. But fortunately, there are several dozen people from around the country and even around the world that got on a plane and joined us. And Marty was one of them. And so I met Marty uh, through that. But Mar Marty, what do you remember uh, from that event? Oh, man, I, I, I'm going to say it was probably... 2010 because i think i had just might have been 2011 because i'd just gotten hired by impact i remember because i had it on my calendar and i and they asked me about if i had any conferences and i'm like well i do want to go to this this conference and they're like what's it called and i was like the epic fail pastors conference uh so that was awesome and and i think it was the was it the very first one you guys had done i think and it was yeah, first ever yeah it was it, it was an absolutely uh it was, it was incredible. I just, and I, it wasn't incredible because it was like, it was incredible because we, you're right. We don't have spaces to talk about failure. Mm. I've even gotten to the place where, um, and, and honestly, JR, I wonder how much even that conference and that conversation uh, helped pave the way for me to make it 
you know, working with college students, one of the things I love to talk about is please, please go fail. Like if you're not failing, you're not, I just wrote a letter uh, to an elders, one of, one of the elders of the church that we just moved away from uh, daughter has a a birthday coming up, coming up. And, and one of the things I put in the letter is just don't be afraid. Like if you're not failing, we're not getting the best version of you. You're leaving something on the table. You're playing it safe. And we don't, not only do we not incentivize failure, but we just don't talk about it. And so that was such a rich uh, experience. As you look back on it, what are, like, what were the things that you loved the most about that chapter of, of what you were doing, JR? What do you remember? Well, it was, it was a conference and we did it several times and we even did it around the, the country in different spaces when we were invited in by cities or denominations or groupings of churches. But it's really a conference about grace for pastors who need it most. But if you call it the Grace Conference, every pastor goes, oh, I know about grace. I preached on grace. But it was pastors and ministry leaders because we often forget that grace when we preach about on Sunday from the pulpit, we forget that it's actually ready of readily available and in abundance to us every day of the week in all areas of our lives. And so I think the richness of that and the crescendo up to taking communion together in that last time, uh, to me, I looked around and said, this is the most impactful, powerful time of communion I think I'd ever been a part of in my life. And so I, I remember that. And, and, the, the other the other detail I think was really important is we we met in a bar and it was this pretty seedy bar, but it was the first church in our community a hundred and you know thirty years ago or whatever, but it had failed and then became a Kiwanis club and then it became a bar. And I thought, man, even the venue itself holds the space in which we're trying to talk about. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it certainly turned a lot of heads. Um, but it really got people's attention to say exactly what you're talking about, Marty. If we hide our failures, we never are opening ourselves up to the beautiful gift of grace that it's full, that is fully available to us. And so, yeah, it, it, pastors need grace too. And we forget that a lot. We all do. But I think especially professional Christians who are paid to love Jesus, it's easy to forget that grace is available to us as well. It kind of sounds like the alien orphan widow concept, but applied specifically to pastors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because that, I mean, how, well, yeah, Brent, I mean, how, that's what happens when you fail in ministry. Uh, you, it's definitely what it feels like, like you get alienated, you get marginalized, you get orphaned. Um, and, and sometimes that's definitely a feeling we project, but, but it's also a real reality in so many cases for different reasons. So I love that connection. And Jerry, you wrote a book on failure, if I understand it correctly, one of the many books that you've written. Yeah, uh, it actually came about from this Epic Fail Pastors Conference idea. There were several people that said to me, you know, I don't think I can even come to an event like that because of pressure from my elders or my denominational board would say, what's wrong with you? Or uh, even if you made it free, the fact I have to get on a plane and get a hotel and, you know, all this I can't even afford that because of my own failure in ministry. And so talking with publishers, um, I just began to say, you know what, maybe maybe we need to put the principles and the concepts of this idea of the Epic Fail Pastors Conference in a book. And so that was the driving force of that. I worked with 
an agent and uh, we sent it out to 12 different publishers. 11 different publishers rejected it, which is kind of ironic and maybe not so ironic when the title of your book is Fail. Uh, but it was InterVarsity Press was the one that decided to to uh, take a risk on it and and publish it. But yeah, we live in a culture that worships success. And even in the church, we worship ministry success. So we we have a very anemic understanding and a flimsy theology of failure. And so the conference and then the book was trying to help pastors see that failure can be a blessing and an invitation and not just a curse, that it's a beautiful gift wrapped in ugly wrapping paper. And so it's it's not a book that you want to just hand to your pastor at Christmas and say, hey, I heard about this book titled Fail and I thought of you. <laughs> it's a book that kind of has to find you, right? You don't find it. Um, but there's been a lot of failure and rejection and shame and disappointment in ministry, especially so far in a pandemic year. And so I wrote this to encourage pastors to remind them they're not alone and to equip them with a hopeful framework of failure and hopefully a theology of failure to equip them to, to fail successfully. Well, I'll put a link to that book in our show notes in case anyone is listening and is, is discovering it through this podcast. Or maybe if you're you're feeling bold, you can give it to your pastor. <laughs> yeah, if the if the book found them as they were listening here, uh, Jr. I was curious as I thought about this interview today. Is that do you consider that portion? I mean, I'm, I think I, I'm getting an answer as I listen to you talk. Is that a portion of your life that like that was what I was working on back then? That was like a past project, or do you find this this same passion is alive and well in who Jr. is and what Jr. I'm assuming it fits into those four those four pillars of your life you were talking about earlier. Yes, failure is omnipresent and so is grace. And we often forget that. And especially during the pandemic, as I said, we're tempted to believe a lot of lies about ourselves, about God and about others. And if all is grace, therefore, instead of trying to hide the failures, we need to use them in a way that helps others. And, you know, I love that beautiful image of Jesus showing his wounds to Thomas for his own faith and healing. And so what does it look like for us to show our own wounds to the world for their own healing as well? I just think that's what ministry is. And so that wasn't some project from a few years ago. I, I think that in many ways was um, the foundation of which the rest of the house had to be built because I, I want to build my life on the foundation of grace. And the only way I receive grace is if I first admit I'm a failure. And so in some ways that was foundational of which the other elements and even the other writing projects can be built from that. So just the opportunity for us to embrace failure and step further into grace has never been more opportune in our lifetime than right now. And uh, that that continues, um, even though we haven't hosted any Epic Fail Pastors Conferences for a while, and I think partly because the book is out, um, I don't think it killed the conference, but I think oftentimes when people ask about it, I say, well, read the book, and maybe we can have a conversation about that. Um, and so uh, yeah, it continues to play a huge part in our lives. And I'm not sure failure will ever go away. And unfortunately, I don't see the golden calf uh, of success that we worship in North America is going away anytime soon, unfortunately. And so therefore, I think we need a, a deeply rooted and robust theology of failure. Yeah, that's great. So jumping ahead a little bit, JR, you've, uh, your most recent book is called The Sacred Overlap which Marty um, read and gave five stars, which is a, a special honor for Marty's rating system. Um, four stars is like excellent. Like it's, it's the best you could expect. And then that fifth star is like this, this special something that really, you know, struck a chord with him. So 
maybe tell us a little bit about that book, uh, describe what it is, and, and then maybe Marty can share uh, some of what made it special for him as well. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Marty, for your kindness to not only endorse the book, but also get the word out and to allow me to share this with your listeners here. I'm, I'm deeply honored for the five stars. And uh, thank you, Brent. I didn't know how difficult it was to get a Marty five star. So I'm, I'm deeply honored by that. But, <laughs> but we live in a world that's incredibly divisive and polarized. I think we felt that over the last several months, the last several years. And um, the cultural and the religious, the political, the relational, the racial divides are growing stronger. And as the arguments are becoming more explosive and the defending of our opinion seems to grow more and more intense, I had this kind of realization as I looked around at the us versus them tribalism. And I thought, man, there's got to be a better way in which we live than this. <laughs> and it led me to say, well, as someone who is deeply devoted to the way of Jesus, how should I what, what should my posture be in the midst of all this divisiveness? And how about all Christians that are taking Jesus seriously, especially in North America? How do we live like Jesus in such divisive and alienating times? So instead of embracing a posture of kind of either or entrenchment, where we sort of look at, quote unquote, the other as the problem, I began to ask, is it possible to be faithfully following the way of Jesus and still live in a both and reality? And our call as followers of Jesus is to join him in that heaven overlapping with earth reality right now. And nothing has messed with my theology more than reading my Bible. And the more I read my Bible, the more I began to say, wait a second, there, Jesus is the great either or. He invites us into this, into this way. But once we trust him in that, there's a whole bunch of these spaces throughout the Gospels where we see Jesus living in a both and. And that's that was kind of the the beginning, the germinating seeds in all of this to say, wait a second, even when we pray the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a prayer of overlap. That's where Jesus is asking us to pray that heaven and earth would overlap. And when heaven and earth overlap, the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God is present. So um, that's a little bit of, of the nature of the summary of the book. Yeah, I I, I appreciate it. I, I, I kind of like the 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 failure topic i feel like maybe one of the things that i i love about what you do jr and what you do really well is you find these corners that are like just just always present um always kind of there in our face but but these things we never know like we don't articulate or we avoid or and you just find this uh this way of talking about it that's very it, it's not heavy handed but it's not too mechanical, but it's, but it's super accessible, uh, super accessible, but it's also like well thought out. And it, it just struck a, like, I, I kind of thought like, okay, this is going to be a really good book. And I, I love the premise. Uh, it, but, but, you know, and that kept writing down. I kept going, man, this is, this is just, I kept finding myself right in the middle of whatever chapter was talking about. Like, this is such an important overlap this is such an every chapter this is another really important tension that rarely gets and i think it also helped that at the same time i was reading a whole bunch of uh richard Rohr, which is a great companion to <laughs> reading J.R. briggs there was all this talk of we love to bifurcate we love to mm. we love to make these two binary it's either this or it's this it's a linear scale and you got to pick your side or figure out where you land 
And it's not this linear binary. It's a much more complex, nuanced overlap. And so I just, I, I really uh, appreciated that. What, what was it that made you want to, what was like the catalyzing was, is there a story behind the book? Was it just this thing that evolved over time? What was the thing that made you go, that's the next thing that I'm going to write about? Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I find so important, and I appreciate your kind words about the book. I, when I have a significant question I need to answer and I go to look everywhere and I can't find it and it bothers me to a certain point, then I say, maybe I'm the one that has to write on it. (laughs) So for example, you know, with the fail, with fail, I just said, man, there's got to be somebody out there that's writing on a theology of failure. And everywhere I looked, I couldn't find it. And I said, well, all right, well, I'll just kind of step in the gap. And I think in this particular case with the sacred overlap, it was the same thing of realizing, wait, there's a lot of mystery here. How come no one ever taught me in my upbringing in reading the Bible that there are all these both and realities with Jesus? And I mean, Jesus being described as being fully God and fully man. He was committed to justice and mercy that we're to be a part of this in spirit and truth. We worship him. Um, The kingdom of God is near and it's here. Uh, What do we do with all these? The kingdom of God is full of old treasures as well as new. So what do we do with these both hands? No one was talking about it. And I said, maybe that's where we need to talk about it. Um, So it's helping Western thinking readers understand a little bit more of Eastern oriented Jesus and his way that he invites us into. And that either or thinking is a bit anemic at times, but the both end reality is where Jesus lives and invites us in. So a lot of times I write to articulate just my own thoughts. What do I believe about this? Um, so, and then the other thing, this all the way back to college, and I talk about this in the book as well. There was a speaker at a camp that my my wife, then fiance at the time, went to a college weekend retreat, winter camp. And uh, there was a speaker there I'd never heard of. And he said, if we are faithfully following Jesus, we will be too pagan for our Christian friends and too Christian for our pagan friends. And that line never left me. And that has grabbed me around the throat and refuses to let go. And I began to say, yeah, isn't that what happened with Jesus? He's kind of being... Uh, attacked from both sides at times. And if I'm faithfully following Jesus, won't I be accused of being too pagan for my Christian friends and too Christian for my pagan friends? Um, so that was a lot of the genesis of of the book. I mean, we can't even talk about theology of the Trinity or of the incarnation uh, without talking about some of these overlapping spaces. And JR, you studied at Jerusalem University College for a while, and I think you're, you're on their board. I'm not exactly sure what that means uh, for your day-to-day life, but what was that experience spending time in Jerusalem? Like, did that speak to, uh, this tension and this, this concept in the book? Um, like, did you get something out of their, out of their culture, out of that school specifically, or, or how did that play into this? Yeah, well, Jerusalem University College, uh, continues to shape me. And yeah, I do serve on the, the board of trustees there at the college. And uh, that was 20 years ago. My love for the text, I can trace it back specifically to the fall semester of 1999. And that changed my life. I mean, I loved the Bible before then, but it's almost as if reading it and then going on field trips to on location and learning about the maps and the culture and the geography and the rock formations in this part of the world and the people group here and this was going on in other regions and this culture here, that really shaped me. That rocked me in a good, 
in a good way. And, and by the way, I love your podcast, what you all are doing here. Your podcast just throws gas on the fire even more. So thank you for the good work that you both are doing uh, in this. But it was talking with, okay, I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. And then I go all of a sudden, I learn uh, from a rabbi on uh, teaching my Jewish thought and culture practice on Friday mornings from nine to noon. And then I walk down and see my friend Suleiman, the Muslim shopkeeper in the Christian quarter. And then I go over and see my friends Dove and Moshe, modern day Pharisees, originally from Canada, who run a shop and know and have memorized more scripture in the New Testament than I have, even though they don't believe in the New Testament. <laughs> that began to really wrestle with me, mess with me. And I wrestled with what does this mean for me? And so how do I live in the mystery of this when I so love the bento boxes of separation when Jesus is actually not anywhere close to those bento boxes most of the time that he's living in the tension of the both and? Moshe is one of our good friends there in Jerusalem. I'm glad we have that shared connection. I, oh, yeah. I love that yeah. man. Love. I went back a few years ago. I was leading a trip back to, to Israel with a group from our church, and I made sure we stopped in there. And I pulled out an old photo from 1999, and I showed it to him. And I said, I don't expect you to remember me, but this is me and you. And he said, boy, both of us have put on a little bit of weight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. I... <laughs> uh, now, so... This this book, Sacred Overlap, Jared, it's been it's been out for a while. Now I'm sure you've had some of these conversations, probably the way that book promotion goes, some interviews, some chats here and there. But now you're also getting to like I, I'm sure that conversation's evolving. You're getting to hear back from people about how they're interacting with the book and what they're getting out of it. Um what are you what are you seeing or what what's something maybe that surprises you or or what is new and or what do you hope God is doing with that? Like, what do you hope God is doing with the sacred overlap conversation? Yeah, that's a, well, that's a great question. Um, one of the things I'm hearing back is if people don't read the book carefully and they just skim it or read the back cover, they call me a heretic. <laughs> when they read the book though, they begin to go, Oh yeah, that's not what you're saying. <laughs> and so I think I always find that to be a little bit, a, a little bit funny. I want to be a little bit like a pebble in people's shoe. Um, where they just can't ignore that of saying, maybe I need to rethink how I've lived maybe more bifurcated in my faith than I need to be. And so the fact that we can hold this intention, this both and while still having Jesus squarely at the center, uh, I think is, is really uh, important for people to grasp. And I'm grateful that they have grasped it. Um, I hope that people become more peculiar. And I talk about this in the book, but We've been around Christians that are too normal, where their lives are no different than the lives of the people around them. And the unbelieving world just says, why, why in the world would I want to be a Christian? I mean, look at you. You're no different than me. But on the other end, we've been around Christians that are really too weird. And I'm not sure we're called to be either one. And so what do you call that space between being normal and weird? I, I landed on the word peculiar. And I think we really, in some ways, peculiar, being peculiar is to be uncategorizable. And that peculiarity became the attractiveness of the early church. And that idiosyncratic faith is found in the overlap. It's both normal and weird, but it doesn't fit into either one of those categories perfectly. So I think we've lost our peculiarity 
And I really hope that this book helps Christians recover it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite conversations that was in the book to the, the encouragement to be a peculiar people. Um, just excellent. So definitely recommend uh, that book. I know I did a video endorsement on YouTube and Brent will throw that in our show notes too. If you want to uh, see me talk a little bit, a little bit more about that. Um, JR, I want to, I want to do something a little selfish here and, and, and just do it in front of our listeners here a little bit. And I don't know why, but it'll, it's always fun. I, when I'm listening to a podcast, I always learn from these little tidbits. I want to pull back the curtain just a little bit. Um, you've been, and you'll probably have to go back before the sacred overlap. Uh, whatever your first books were, what was your first book, JR? It's a book that uh, I wrote in my late twenties called when God says jump. And I it's, it's out of print now. And truthfully, it probably should have been. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I'm not going to get into details here, but this, there could be, um, there, there could be a chapter in my life that's coming where, um, I could be entering into this weird world of authoring books. That's all I'm going to say for that for now. But um, I, I'm curious of of talking to people like you and learning from your experiences. You've now you've now said two things um, that Brent will have to edit the gulp on my microphone uh, that got probably got recorded um, talking about like when you when you did this this uh, I think you're talking about your book on fail um, and failure you. You said you wrote this. You sent it to twelve publishers. Eleven said no. Yeah. Um, you, you speak of your first book like it's it's probably good. It's out of print. Like, <laughs> what has the experience of writing books? I, I don't even know what I don't know what question to ask you. Talk to me about what it's been like to be an author. Go back to that very first manuscript. Mm -hmm. The things you've learned. What you love. Like. Talk to me about that experience as somebody kind of looking at potentially doing that and what what can I learn from that? Probably others listening as well. It's a great question. And, and I'll preface this by saying two things. First of all, I love this topic because writing is so important. It can be a gift, even a calling uh, within the church. And so I very rarely, I, people ask me about the book, but very rarely do they ask about the writing process. So this is a gift to be asked that, number one. Number two, Marty, you do need to write. You need to write. And if I can help you with that, put me on record, put me down as somebody that wants to help you do that, because I think the world needs to hear more of what you're doing. So that's no pressure, but that's just a cheerleader over here uh, in this corner of the room. Just saying, I, I want to help you do that if I can. Um, well, I appreciate that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> with that being said, um, you know, the idea of writing, wanting to write and wanting to be published are two different things. Many people, when they, you know, when they come up and ask me, how do I get, how do I get published? I'll say to them, do you want to write or do you want to get published? Because those are two different things. Writing is if I write and no one publishes it, I still enjoy the craft of writing and sharing it with whoever wants to just look at it. Other people want to get published and that's the exciting, that's the sexy thing. But what happens is then they get to the writing part and it's really hard. There's not a single person I've met that has found writing to be easy. And uh, writing, well, I'll say this, writing is easy. It's the rewriting that's excruciating. Mm. It's editing that's really hard. And Maya Angelou said, I don't like writing. I like having written. And I think that's a good description. Uh, it's like me with mowing the lawn. I don't like mowing the lawn. I like having mowed the lawn, past tense. Um, but I use, the best analogy I use, and this is kind of weird for three dudes on this podcast to talk about, but it's like giving birth. 
And uh, it's a weird metaphor, I know, for us as males to think about. But I do think with authoring um, and, and writing that this is the case, because you find out, woohoo, I got a book contract. This is really exciting. You know, we're expecting. This is cool. And then there are days you're just like, this hurts and I can't sleep and I have heartburn and I don't want to do this and stretch marks and ah. Uh, and then the labor process, you're just like, this is so painful. I'll never do this again. This is so hard. I hate this feeling. And then you hold her in your arms and you just look at her and say, she's so beautiful, honey. Let's do this again. Let's have more children. And then you just go through the whole process again. But each time I look at my wife and I say, don't ever let me write another book again. And she smiles and goes, yeah, okay, okay. And she knows I'm just in the burning part there where it's just so hard. And so it's a beautiful gift. It's a calling. But for me, I'm wired as a teacher. And for me, writing is teaching on paper for students who are hungry to learn through the written word. And um, I, I don't read nonfiction or I don't read fiction. I only read nonfiction. I know readers, when they hear that, they hate me for that. Well, you have a kindred spirit in Marty, that's for sure. <laughs> Amen. Whew. There's just too many good, true things in the world I want to learn. There's not enough time for me to read all those books. And uh, so I love nonfiction, and I want to write to nonfiction. And Marty, because you're a teacher, yeah, that's why, and, and you're so good at that, and you have such a passion for that. I think putting that down in written form is going to be a gift to the world. So I just want to encourage you to do that. And uh, it's hard. It's like giving birth. Uh, there are stretch marks. There's all sorts of things that come with it. But man, when you look down and you go, man, she's so beautiful. I'm so glad we did this. So I just want to encourage you with that. And I hope uh, hope some of that experience or wisdom uh, it can help you and maybe even some other of your listeners. Uh, I, I like that metaphor. That probably speaks to to Brent right now in this chapter of your life. We should have Maggie on the podcast. She can talk to me about writing books. My my <laughs> wife is presently pregnant, hopefully close to giving birth by the time this episode comes out. We're kind of in the middle of it as we record, but yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so if you look back on this, this journey from, you know, however long you've been actually writing and, and seeing those things published, if you could try to, uh, what, what's one nugget of wisdom, practical wisdom that you could say, if you were to boil some idea down and here's what I've learned as I've looked at do this or don't do that, or give me one little nugget of, of something from the world of writing. It's a nugget that is very common with other writers, but it's so true. The muse shows up when your butt is in the seat and it's so easy to just talk about writing or read books about writing or say, one day I'm going to get, get to writing But writing happens when you just sit down and you commit to writing, not just when you're inspired, but also when you don't feel like it. And you just say, I need to just do the disciplined work of making sure I get this out of my head and onto the page. Um, I think it was Hemingway that said, uh, which, you know, I mean, we can, I don't know about your audience if they would love this or not, but I I find this uh, to be helpful. And I'm sure he meant it metaphorically, but Ernest Hemingway said, uh, he said, write sober or write drunk, edit sober, <laughs> write drunk. Edit sober. And, uh, I'm not as sure about the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, just let it flow freely, but then later go back and really think very carefully. Um, the game is won or lost, not in the writing, but in the rewriting and the editing. Hmm. So I would say great writers are not great writers in their first draft. They're great writers when they go through 
and they just sift through and asking questions like, is this the point of this paragraph? Does every word matter in this sentence? What's the question that I'm trying to answer in this chapter? What is the need that this book is meeting here? How do I engage with my readers here? How am I pushing my point forward with each paragraph? So uh, writing is easy. It's the editing and the rewriting that's excruciating. Uh, that's actually really good, I think. I think one of the things I'll I'll struggle with knowing how I write as I try to get it right on the first pass. Like I try to get it all revised. And so, which makes the editing even harder because I'm like, oh, I've already done so much work on this. It's already ready. How can I edit it? How can I revise it? So I like that piece of advice too. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you one more since you're touching Ooh. on this. Yeah. If we have time for a brief one. Um, that in some ways, I feel like there are three phases to writing. There's the down phase, the up phase, and the tweak phase. The down, the down phase is just get it all down. Doesn't have to be good. It shouldn't be perfect. It won't be perfect. Just get it all down. Get too much down. The second phase is the up phase where you're tightening it up. That's where you're cutting things. You're changing things around. Kind of, oh, chapter two should be chapter eight. Oh, this paragraph belongs to the beginning, not the end. And then the, the third one is the tweak one where you're just saying, man, is there a better verb there? Uh, how do I make that a stronger adjective? Um, is that a detail that I can bring in to tell that story to make it shine and shimmer a little bit more? Um, so the, the down phase, the up phase and the tweak phase, I think are, are really important movements for me as a writer. Mm. So when you're writing, are you, when you're, when you're in those moments where you don't necessarily feel inspired and you're just forcing yourself to write, do you sit down and say, I'm going to write for four hours or do you have a certain page count that you're trying to hit or what, what's your, what's your like goal line that you're getting to when you don't have that inspiration? It's a great question. I, I believe that everybody has a different writing personality. There are some writers that can just go off into some cabin in the woods for two weeks. And when they come back, they have a beautiful manuscript. I'm not one of those people. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people that can take little drips and drabs of their time, 10 minutes here, a little snatch of 15 minutes there. I can't do that either. I've got to be focused and in the zone. So for me, I've found that if I can block out about four hours a week, uh, normally in one, maybe two chunks of uninterrupted time and treat it like a meeting, like no one interrupt me. I need to focus on this. That gives me a chance to do it. And by the time I'm at the end of that, I'm exhausted. I'm like, I'm done. I'm not going to touch it for another week. Then by the time I come back around, which normally is on a Monday, then on a Monday, I go, I'm ready to engage again. Let's do this. Let, let me engage back in with this. And then I have a little bit more perspective. So I think the most important thing is that everybody needs to find out their writing personality. And you only know that by experimenting and trying out what, what works. And so I've just found what works for me. And, um, and that's helpful. And some days it comes easy. After four hours, I go, I can't believe it's up. Are you kidding me? And it's a really productive day. And then other days I just go, man, I just feel like I was just slogging in the fog through the bog here. This is just not helpful. Uh, and maybe I only came out with 300 words after three or four hours. Um, but I have to say, well, I need to trust in faith that that's the progress that I was supposed to make today. And I'm going to leave it here and I'll return to it in a week. And worst case scenario, I mean, you can edit it out later if it doesn't end up being the right thing. So that's, that's the beauty of the process. Yeah. And, and one, as a perfectionist, I have to fight that in my head all the time to say like, Oh, this is not going to come out perfectly. And I have to keep reminding myself, none of it's perfect. The best authors in the world, it doesn't come out perfectly. 
So take your time and just get it out there and worry later about how to make it perfect. But right now we're in the down phase, Briggs. We're not in the up phase. We're not in the tweak phase. We'll get there, but just get it down. I love that. That's great. Thanks for letting me ask you a little bit about that. That's a little different kind of a conversation, but I love it. It's very helpful for me personally. Love it. Um, let's see here. Uh, so come towards a close. Here's my open floor question for you, JR. Uh, what, what other kind of things in your life are you excited about? What What else is there to know? Like, I, I, this is the open-ended, what does Marty not know to ask you mm. that I that I ought to ask you? Well, I, I love that question of what's going on, what am I excited about? I, I'm really fortunate. I always feel like around our organization, there are a lot of exciting things swirling about just dreaming and developing resources and spaces to equip hungry kingdom leaders. And there are three things specifically that are really lighting my fire in this season. Um, you know, Marty, you've been a guest on our the podcast I co-host called the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. But um, I also um, several months ago started uh, another podcast called Resilient Leaders, the Resilient Leaders Podcast. And just with the pandemic, really wanting to help leaders, I think the word resilience is of utmost importance in this season for all sorts of leaders. And we have a theology of resilience as well. So it's uh, twice a week, just kind of 10, 11 minutes in and out. Uh, and that that's exciting. Number two, um, I just submitted the manuscript for my next book, which will be coming out in March. And so I'm certainly excited about, about that. And, uh, and then also, uh, when it comes to scripture, one thing, one thing that we did, uh, through the pandemic in, in the, uh, the late spring and early summer is I just put out on Twitter, Hey, if anybody's interested, I'm going to be hand copying the book of Luke. If anybody wants to join me, let me know. And it went viral. And there were people from all over the world in four continents and nine different languages that joined with us on a process of just hand copying uh, the book of Luke together. And it was a beautiful thing. So now that Luke is done here uh, in, in the new year, we're, we're, um, we're looking to do uh, hand copying the book of John. And so if any of your listeners want to jump in, uh, it's not too late. We'd love to have you. And so we're just uh, very simply hand cop, hand, hashtag hand copying John on social media and just inviting people to post pictures and questions and what they're learning through the process of slowing down to see the text uh, in a slower speed than our reading speed. Yeah. That's one of the things you mentioned on, uh, on that episode of your podcast that Marty was on. I think you, you and Doug were talking about it, uh, in a, in a pre-segment, but I was going to ask if you had any, um, fun new details that you've discovered from, from more recent readings. You know, it's, um, just by slowing down, like, I mean, there's, there's hardly a day that goes by that I don't go, huh, I never thought about that. So just yesterday, even though I, I, I was just doing just the Zacchaeus story. I mean, how many times have I read the story of Zacchaeus? But I somehow missed the detail that Zacchaeus wasn't looking to talk to Jesus. It's that he wanted to see Jesus. And I just, I, that just sent me on a whole new direction of thinking he just wanted to get a chance to bump into Jesus so he could ask him something. No, it doesn't say that. He wanted to see Jesus. And I wonder if he was even startled or fearful that Jesus actually talked to him. There are times where I want to see celebrities. I'm not sure I want to talk to celebrities. I just want to see them uh, if I can up close, if I'm in the same room or the same area. And that little detail would not have come about. I would not have seen that or explored that had I not slowed down enough to hand copy out the story of Zacchaeus. Mm, that's good. I like that. 
that, uh, and, and that whole thing's very Bema-esque. I, I think we can totally with confidence suggest our, our listeners consider something like that. That feels very creating a space type thing to do. I like it. What's your platform for discussion on that uh, as far as people joining you in, in that process? Yeah, uh, very simply, just on our website, kairospartnerships.org. And uh, there's a blog section there. So if you just click the blog section, you'll see a post. And, and we just give tips and helpful tools. If anybody wants to join us on that, you can also follow me on Twitter at, uh, at J.R. Briggs. Sorry, at J.R. underscore Briggs. Uh, on Twitter. So yeah, we'll be giving updates on the Monday morning pastor podcast as well. Uh, but yeah, anybody's more than welcome to jump in and join us. Um, there's no registration page. There's no, Hey, sign up on this. It's just, Hey, jump in and join us. Even if you're behind or it's not a race, we just want to encourage people on the journey at whatever speed they're going, but we're encouraging people to just handwrite 10 verses a day, just 10, 10 a day. And I think, you know, doing that in the same way that you're writing a book, just sitting down, even when you don't feel like doing it with a, with a small goal, like 10 verses a day, like it's totally achievable. It's very achievable. And it's been so fun to hear. Uh, I just thought it would be a few people in North America in English writing in a journal <laughs> and to see it mushroom to several continents and these nine different languages. And sometimes people take a picture of it and it just expands my appreciation and love for God. When I see someone write in Japanese you know, this passage that I just hand wrote that morning in English, or I see it in Dutch, or I see it in Hebrew, or it's just been a beautiful thing to remind me that every nation, language, tongue, tribe, uh, all serving the same God, it just, it encourages me deeply. I love it. Um, yeah, so one of the other things you mentioned on the episode with Marty is uh, you, you guys asked him about what was coming after uh, session five. And, and I just wanted to ask, did you ever expect to be within the first couple episodes of, of what we now have as session six? No, not at all. In fact, I'm deeply grateful and honored that, uh, you all would invite me into this process. And, uh, I am, like I said, I'm a huge fan of what you all are doing. And, uh, every time I hear uh, an episode and I think about Bama, I, I think about the time where I was standing in Corinth, and I think you and I have probably stood on the same slab there in the Bama there in Corinth. And uh, so I just think of that and that space. And I'm so grateful for the ministry and the work that you are doing. I know it's a ton of work. Uh, I just want to bless you guys uh, for your willingness to, to do this because the sacred text is amazing and understanding the cultural and historical uh, and geographical uh, roots and the background to it is so crucial for us. Uh, to understand our text so we can understand our God. Yeah, getting to hear some more of your story and, and what you're doing and what you're working on, I definitely see why your work resonates with Marty and, and I think vice versa as well. So yeah, it's been it's been great. Marty, do you have any other questions you want to pop in before we close this thing out? No more questions. It's a big thank you. I'm glad our paths have crossed JR and they continue to cross and uh Shout out to Worth Wheeler for recommending I meet this guy named Jr. And uh, that's right, Worth Wheeler. Yeah, what a guy! Yeah, <laughs> he is. He is. But just thanks, Jr. for for being here for doing your part uh, in the kingdom. And and as is the case when everybody does their part, we we all we all look at it and we love it. So thanks for doing yours. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate both of you. All right, Jr. I will have links uh, to Kairos Partnerships. Um, We'll, we've, you've got a page that uh, talks about what you're doing and also um, the 
wide variety of places that uh, you've been published. We'll put both of those links in there. You are JR underscore Briggs on Twitter. Uh, Marty's and Marty Solomon on Twitter, and I'm EIBCB. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We will talk to you again soon. I did find one copy of your first book available on Amazon right now, but I won't put it in the show. Is it like five thousand dollars? It's twenty four dollars. <laughs> I was gonna say twenty four cents. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I it's yeah, I look back on that and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like somebody who wrote that when they were like twenty six years old. So there you go. Oh man, there's if you go into the used section, there's two under under collectible, and one of them says autographed first edition. Oh, there you go. That's I, I told my mom not to do that. That's <laughs> that's awesome. I'm gonna have to talk to my mom about that. She's trying to make money off her son. That's just no good. <laughs> that's so great.